Our sermon passage today continues on in our series, uh, True and Better, the Gospel of John. And today we'll be looking at John chapter 2, verses 13 through 22. This is God's Word, good, beautiful, and true. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords, and he drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, Get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, Zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all of this? Jesus answered to them, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said, and they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that in it we get a picture of who you are and what you're up to. So I pray in these moments that as we reflect, as we reflect on these words, that you'd move by your Holy Spirit. Open the eyes of our hearts to see the beauty and majesty of Jesus and conform us to be people who are more and more like like him. And I pray all of this in his matchless name. Amen. You know, zeal is a great word, zeal. It's fun to say. We don't have a lot of words that start with Z, so when we find one, we've got to latch onto it, right? <laughs> um, but it's not just fun to say. I think it's a good word, zeal. Uh, the idea is a passionate, uh, a passionate drive that leads to action. Not just passion, not just uh, feeling uh, like we're really into something, but a drive that leads to action. You know, I think human beings were made to be zealous. We were made for zeal. We were made to find a good purpose and put our time and our money and our energy uh, toward it. We were made to be passionate, to, to, to be zealous. But a lot of times in our world, zeal is decidedly a bad thing, right? We can think about instances in our own lives or even just look at the news from this week. We see so many ways that zeal Uh, becomes a destructive thing, an incredibly dangerous and destructive thing. But zeal is a Bible word. If you read through Scripture, you'll see zeal is a word that's used to describe God, even. When it talks about God, it speaks of His zeal, His passion, His passionate drive that leads to action. And and when it speaks of God, His zeal is uh, His reaction to the damage of sin in his world. He even carries with this idea of fury, that God sees what sin has done to his creation, and he's furious. And so it leads him to action, leads him to make that which is crooked straight, that which is wrong right, God's zeal. But in Scripture, zeal can also be a negative thing. Zeal is a word that's used to describe human beings who maybe are zealous against other people, um, or, or zealous toward something in an envious sort of way. In that way, people are zealous toward uh, things that aren't worth being passionately driven towards. The thing that decides whether zeal is a good or bad thing is this object, what we're zealous about. In our passage today, we see Jesus, as it says in verse 17, consumed 
with zeal, consumed with zeal. And that might be a description that makes us a little nervous. I don't think any of us would like to be described as somebody who's consumed with zeal. We tend to want to be uh, cool and calm, collected. We have it all together. But in our passage, we see Jesus consumed with zeal. And it's not a zeal that's uh, after somebody else or envious towards something. It's a zeal that is uh, matching God's zeal, his fury against what sin has done in his world. And what I think we see in this passage is the zeal of Jesus, our Savior, but also the example of Jesus. What his zeal as our example can mean for us, for human beings who are made to be passionately driven toward action. So to get our mind around the zeal of Jesus a little bit more, I wanted to break up our passage today, or this sermon, into a couple different sections. And the first one's this, the zeal of Jesus for God and for people. The zeal of Jesus for God and for people. So what did Jesus value? What was so central to him that he was uh, driven toward passionate action. Well, we see he is zealous for God and for people. Now, to better understand what this looks like, it might help us to know a little bit about the background of this passage. It mentions in verse 13 that all of this takes place at the time of Passover at the temple in Jerusalem. So Passover in the temple. Now, Passover was maybe the defining holiday in the Jewish calendar. It commemorated God rescuing the ancestors of the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. So, so many generations before, the Egyptian, uh, the Egyptian empire was the most powerful one on, on, on earth. And they had built their power, they had built their wealth on the back of other people. They had built their power by subjecting people like the Israelites to slavery, who literally built their cities, who worked, uh, worked for them. Um, without you know recourse to law, without uh, any any way of freedom or building wealth for themselves and their families, and so they had cried out, and God had responded, and we can see this in the book of Exodus under Moses. God responded, and He delivered His people from the bondage of Egyptian slavery. Now the reason it's called Passover is the way that God delivered his people from this oppressive uh, Egyptian empire was that he had visited judgment upon the Egyptian empire. He came in judgment against that oppression. But there was a problem. His people, the Israelites, were still in Egypt. And so he told them, there's going to be a way, I'm going to make a way, for you to not be consumed in this judgment. And it's the way of sacrifice. And so what he told them is he said, uh, for each of your households, take a lamb and sacrifice this lamb. Take the blood of that lamb and put it on the doorposts of your house. And then that lamb is to be cooked and served as a meal for you and your family. The idea was this, sacrifice to avoid judgment and a community, a family surrounding a table, a community created basically around God's providing of a way out from judgment. Escape from judgment, salvation, and a community created. These were the central ideas of Passover. And so what happened is uh, the ancestors of these, uh, or you know, the, the people, all the generations after these, um, these folks begin to celebrate Passover every year. And as they celebrated, it was not just them uh, having barbecues on the 4th of July like, like we do in America. The idea was that they had set apart this time 
And they said, we're going to commemorate this day, not just as a way of remembering, but as they celebrated, it was almost in a sense of them taking on this history. Them saying, God acted in the past to redeem these people from slavery. That God is my God. And He is a God that acts on my behalf. And in fact, He not only acts on my behalf individually, He has promised to make all things new, which is a promise that runs throughout the whole Old Testament. And so this idea of uh, salvation through uh, sacrifice, avoiding judgment through sacrifice, and the creation of community uh, from that salvation of God was a theme that ran through all of this commemoration of Passover later on. All of it. And that uh, vertical aspect of salvation uh, from uh, judgment by God was maybe the most primary. It's the one that I think people tend to think about when they think of Passover, uh, God passing over uh, those households and not visiting judgment on them. But that horizontal aspect of creating a community was a central one as well. And we can see this throughout uh, the rest of the books written by Moses, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It visits. It comes back to this idea over and over again. And the idea is this. God redeems his people from Egyptian slavery, and he creates them, or he creates in them a new nation. And he gives them laws. And these laws are to establish them as a different kind of nation. And you'll see it if you read through. Over and over again, God says things like this. You are not to mistreat the foreigner because you were a foreigner in Egypt. You are not to mistreat the widow and the orphan and the stranger, you know, the outcast of society, because you were slaves in Egypt. You were outcasts. Therefore, do not mistreat the outcasts that are in your midst. He's essentially saying this, I redeemed you from Egyptian slavery so that you would be a different kind of people. Do not become Egypt. So that's, you know, the, the, the idea that's floating around in this commemoration of Passover year after year that God has created a different kind of people that value different kind of things that don't take advantage of others. But we don't just see in this passage that it's taking place at uh, the time of Passover. We see it's taking place at the location of the temple. Now, the temple was given by God almost like his house. It was like a place where heaven met earth. And it was, uh, it was in the capital city of Jerusalem there in Israel. And it was supposed to be seen as God's house. If God's king over his people, the temple was his palace. And what the temple stood for, uh, it was a big monument to this, that things are not the way they're supposed to be, but God is making a way to make things right. And that was the idea behind the sacrificial system that took place at the temple. Um, things are not the way they're supposed to be, but God is going to dwell with us to make things right. And so he instituted that sacrificial system to let people know they could be reconciled to him. Even if they have great sin, they can be reconciled to him, again, through sacrifice that, re that uh, redeems from judgment what was commemorated at Passover, and that he was going to dwell with them as their God and, his, and they as his people. And so Jesus arrives at Jerusalem, the time of Passover, commemorating their, commemorating their redemption from Egyptian slavery, and their creation into this different kind of community. And he arrives there at the temple 
this place where God is saying, I'm going to dwell with you and I'm going to make things right. And what does Jesus find? Jesus finds massive, massive corruption. And he is furious with the zeal of God at what he sees. Now, it might be lost on us um, because this is a completely different culture. We're separated from this by thousands upon thousands of miles and thousands upon thousands of years. But what Jesus finds there is he finds that officials had set up there in the temple courts, essentially in God's living room, they had set up a market that made money purely on the backs of the people that were there to celebrate Passover. Let me explain. This isn't Jesus just angry at a farmer's market. (laughs) He's not mad that things are being sold. Um, He's mad because what has happened is a corrupt system had built up around the temple. And it was taking advantage of people's faith. And the people that were running these tables, that were selling the cattle and the sheep and the doves, the people that were exchanging the money, were making money on the backs of others. What had happened is Jerusalem, the temple, and the Passover had essentially become uh, Egypt. They had become tools of oppression on the backs of other people. Well, how do we know this? Look at verse 14. Jesus shows up, and what does he find? He found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves. You know, part of the worship at the time in the temple is people would come, and they would bring sacrifices. And the sacrifices would be offered uh, as an absolution to sin. And so the idea was uh, uh, we have sinned against God, but God has... Uh, identified this location of the temple as a place that we can come and we can bring a sacrifice and be made right. Not be uh, judged because of our sin, but we can have our sin removed from us and be made right from Him. And the truth is, most of those uh, sacrifices were then in turn made into meals. And so it wasn't just the picture of sacrifice for sin, but it was also this picture of fellowship, of communion. Uh, again, like Passover. Um, And when the sacrificial system was instituted, most of the people in Israel were farmers. And so they had cattle. They had sheep. Um, The doves were were an allowance made to those who were too poor at the time who didn't have those things. They could offer doves instead of cattle or sheep. But, you know, the idea was people bringing of their wealth to God. And it was like (laughs) the act of sacrifice was... um, was this huge action in their in their midst that basically said this, your stuff is not your God. Your stuff is not your God. And so as they sacrificed their sacrifices, they were saying, um, God is my God. And I can sacrifice this thing, uh, which in modern terms is, would be like us taking up an offering and then setting it on fire. They could sacrifice these things and saying, God is worth it. And even though I'm offering up this thing and losing it, he will take care of me. I do not belong to my stuff. It was this powerful action of worship. But over time, the world changed around all these families that had been farmers. As uh, culture began to develop and different trades developed, suddenly there were tons of families, tons of people who were true worshipers of God who would come to the temple who weren't farmers. And so now they needed access to get sheep and cattle and doves to participate in the sacrificial system, right? Well, some quick-thinking folks began to set up markets. And so there were tons of families around Jerusalem 
whose entire money making, their entire industry as as farmers was raising sheep and cattle for the sacrificial system. And so people would travel into Jerusalem to go worship at the temple and they would buy sheep and cattle from these farmers. Um, but here's the problem. Very quickly, this became corrupt. Very quickly, it became a, a thing where the officials there at the temple took it over and they began to charge outrageous rates for these animals. But for people who weren't farmers or people who were traveling from very far away to come and worship God, they had no other option. These were the only way for them <laughs> to get the sheep, to get the cattle, to get the doves to participate in worship. And so they were charged outrageous prices, but not just that. It talks about the people who were exchanging money. It wasn't just folks, you know, trade money back and forth. What happened also was they said, you can only use one type of currency at the temple. And so people were coming in with their uh, currency from the place where they lived, but they couldn't use their money. They had to exchange their money at outrageous rates of exchange for the temple money, which then they could use to buy the, the cattle at marked up rates. It was a system of absolute corruption that was making money and profit off the back of people who were coming to worship God. So now we see why Jesus reacted with such uh, fury. Because people were using God in the temple, again, almost in God's living room in a sense. They were using God to make money off of other people. They had become uh, Egypt in that sense. They had become people who used other people created in the image of God for their own profit. And so Jesus takes dramatic action here and he grinds it all to a halt. He takes up a whip of cord and he drives out the, the, the cattle and he flips over the tables of the money changers. He takes physical action to make sure that this stops, at least for that day, at least for that Passover. This cannot happen anymore. Jesus drives it out, says it has to end. Why? Because Jesus, in the face of this oppression, is consumed with zeal for God and for other people. But this isn't just a zeal we see in this one scene. If we just had this one scene, maybe it would be an inspirational instance where we could see somebody you know, standing up for others. But what we have here is a little seed that grows and flourishes in the Gospel of John. This is Jesus' first showdown with these people who were taking advantage of others in the name of God, this very first showdown that eventually becomes him facing them in his crucifixion, him being put to death by this unjust system. And that brings us to our second section. The first one was zeal of Jesus for God and for others. The second is this, the zeal of Jesus to the end. The zeal of Jesus to the end. So Jesus does this, and in verse 18, they respond to him, What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all of this? Jesus had disrupted this, uh, disrupted this entire exploitative economic system that's been built up here, and the first question he gets is basically, How dare you? How dare you? They don't stop and say, Oh, what have we done? What have we done? They say, How dare you get in the way of us making money. Who gave you the authority to do this? And rather than submit to their questioning in the way they want to, Jesus responds in what might seem like a confusing and uh, enigmatic way. Verse 19, he says, destroy this temple, speaking about his body, destroy this temple, 
and I will raise it again in three days. Now, essentially what Jesus is saying is this. This has to stop. This taking advantage of people in the name of God has to end. This using the grace of God as a money-making operation has to stop. I will not let it keep going. I'm drawing a line in the sand here. My zeal for God and for other people either means this ends or you're going to have to kill me, destroy this temple. This has to stop. And if we fast forward, we know that's exactly what happens. This does come to a conclusion. Not here, but a couple years later. There in Jerusalem, again. When these folks who asked Jesus, how dare you, um, conjoin their power with the power of the (laughs) Roman authorities to arrest Jesus and have him put under trial on trumped-up charges, and he faces injustice, and he is executed by the state as a criminal, falsely because he stands and it begins here when he stands in the midst of the temple and he says this has to stop you cannot turn my house, my father's house into a market you cannot continue to take advantage of these people but it doesn't just end it might seem like the crucifixion is Jesus being defeated but it doesn't just end there Even here, Jesus knows where this goes because he knows the God that he trusts in. He says, destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. He's talking about, as his disciples knew later on, he's talking about the resurrection of his body. He's talking about the resurrection of this body. And what Jesus is essentially saying here is this, understand that you're going to have to go through me This either has to stop or you're going to have to kill me. But if you do, that's not the end. Because your power, your exploitative power has an expiration date. It will not win. It will not win. You cannot stop God's commitment to bring freedom and grace to His people. No matter how powerful they think they are, no matter how much of a stranglehold they have on the temple or on the people, they cannot stop God's commitment in Jesus to bringing His grace to his people. And ironically enough, their violence against Jesus eventually um, in his crucifixion, it becomes their downfall in more than one way. It becomes the way that God takes away the sin of the world and so makes the sacrificial system in the temple unnecessary. Because in uh, the, the crucifixion of Jesus, what happens is God makes a way for him to rightly judge our sin by removing it from us and placing it on Jesus. He passes over us, kind of pictured for us there in the first Passover. He passes over us in judgment. He rightly judges our sin, but we are redeemed because we are covered by the blood of the Lamb, the true and better Passover Lamb, Jesus, the true and better temple in Jesus. He is the one to whom all the promises and expectations and hopes of all these forms of the Old Testament, all these threads meet in Jesus. And their violence against Jesus and his crucifixion becomes their downfall. Because there no longer needs to be sacrifices for sin because of the one perfect sacrifice of Jesus. Of course, people are creative in their greed. 
we can just turn the TV on today and we'll see that people have uh, spun all kinds of different ways to try to make money off the backs of people um, using God. You see it with televangelists. You see it with uh, all kinds of different religious leaders building their own empires, supposedly in the name of God. You can see it throughout history in different empires that have uh, fought wars and literally killed people with crosses on their shields. But just as Jesus stood in the temple that day and said, it has to end, no matter what you do, you cannot stop the commitment of God to bring His grace to His people Jesus says that today. And so the, the, the false prophets and false preachers, the false uh, teachers that make these promises that are, that are trying to make money off the back of God's people, it will not last. Their power, too, has an expiration date. God will not be stopped in His commitment to bring His grace to His people. There is no obstacle in the way that He will not overcome and remove to make sure that we receive the grace that He has intended for us. That is God's zeal. That is the zeal of Jesus for us. It is a zeal that is willing to go to the end here, as we've said. It is a zeal that will chase after us, that will follow us all the days of our life. And so we see the zeal of Jesus for God and others. We see this zeal that that goes to the end, and that brings us to our third and final section, the zeal, uh, our zeal, our response. Look at verse 22. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now, we could read that and we could say, well, they had an intellectual moment. After the resurrection of Jesus, they remembered this happened and they said, oh, I believe the words of Jesus here. Almost like if we were in a math class and we're taught 2 plus 2 equals 4, we go, oh. Okay, I believe 2 plus 2 equals 4, but that's not what happens. We know this from the life that the disciples live after the resurrection of Jesus. They're believing the words of Jesus here. Is it just them intellectually affirming that Jesus had said something that was true? It becomes a life-changing trajectory as the zeal that Jesus has for God and others becomes their zeal as well because the disciples become people who aren't driven uh, by fear, They become people who aren't driven by dishonest gain or trying to build their own empires. They become people who are driven by the glory of God and the good of other people. They spend the rest of their lives, no matter how long they have, in commitment to making sure people know that Jesus is alive and that changes everything. Making sure people know the grace of God in Jesus Christ. They travel across the entire Roman world. These men who for the most part were from this far-flung region of Galilee who had never left their small town before they met Jesus except for to go to Jerusalem travel throughout the entire known world in that first generation of Christians starting churches. Why? For the glory of God that people might know that people might know the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And they do it for the good of other people. They establish communities, churches in all of these cities to make sure that people don't just hear this message one time, but that it becomes the thing around which this entire community of the church, this entire new family that these people have, is the thing that is at the center of who they are forever. And so these disciples become consumed with zeal for God, and zeal for other people. And that's what it means for them to know and see Jesus having done this and believe the words that he has spoken. 
because they had seen the Jesus that was crucified rise from the dead. And they knew that no matter what opposition they may face in bringing the message of the grace of God to other people, no matter uh, how what they may face in seeking the good of other people, that the God who raised Jesus from the dead would not leave them hanging either. And that's true for us as well. Not that we're all called to plant churches, not that we're all called to be disciples like they were disciples. We're not called to be apostles or write down scripture. But wherever God has placed us, in our jobs, in our families, in our communities, in our schools, He is calling us to have the same kind of zeal as Jesus. Not to show up in churches or temples and <laughs> toss tables over because we don't like what's going on, but that we might be people who use our time, our money, and our energy, and whatever God has given to us at our disposal for His glory and for the good of other people. And that as we do this, we need not... Uh, we need not fret or worry that God will forget us, that we'll be left hanging because the God who raised Jesus from the dead will not linger us hanging either. He will not. And so, as we reflect on this passage, as, as we close this sermon, as we think about the zeal of Jesus, let's ask God to make this our zeal as well. And just like those Israelites who every year would commemorate the Passover and would say that this story is my story. Let's look at the zeal of Jesus and let's, uh, as the New Testament describes it, put on Jesus in the sense of uh, allowing him to define us and so accepting his righteousness as a gift, but also in the sense of putting on Jesus uh, in this uh, taking on his zeal. That we look through our life and we see in what ways can I be passionately driven to action for the grace of God and for the good of other people?